Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Al Ahmed, and I'm back here on New Books Network after a long absence. I had a good excuse, though. I was finishing up the book entitled Investing in Frontier Markets to be released this fall by Wiley & Sons and co-authored with Gavin Graham. Barring unforeseen circumstances, I will be back here regularly with reviews of timely books in the investing and business categories, which I've covered for years as a journalist. And in the business news category, firings, layoffs, and forced resignations have occurred frequently for the past five years. Anyone who recently lost what seemed like a secure job can be forgiven for wondering where he or she went wrong, but in many cases the fault did not lay with the terminated employee. And we can understand how any individual who has full-time employment might wonder how long it will last. In the last year, blue chip employers have terminated thousands of employees, 2,400 at Dow Chemical, 5,400 at American Express, over 4,300 at Bank America, even 4,000 at Google, and the list goes on, Thomson Reuters, United Technologies, and others. And declining revenues don't always explain the layoffs. In late May, ESPN confirmed plans to lay off over 400 employees, despite an increase in operating income of 8%. ESPN had not had any layoffs since 2009. And we know that positions in the executive suite have become equally uncertain. So on the face of all that, how does one survive? Susan Fromstein offers some clues in her book, Suits and Ladders. Ten proven ways to keep your job safe, and as she says, with a few jokes thrown in. It contains what she describes as universal survival strategies. Her book is on Amazon Kindle in both ebook and paperback versions. Susan fesses up and says that her own failure to keep her job inspired her book. And I have her on the line right now. Hello, Susan. Are you there? I sure am, Alan. Thanks so much. Okay. As an author, you would, might agree that when authors tackle books in nonfiction categories that offer guidance and suggestions, they're responding to a need that they've perceived out there. Uh, they believe that there are enough readers out there who have a certain need. What are you responding to in writing this book? Mine was more of a, a personal need, as you mentioned in your introduction. You see, despite my laser intellect and bubbly personality and award-winning PR and marketing skills, I kept losing my job. 
probably because of liability reasons. Uh, the reasons for my termination were never discussed with me. And there was after opportunity because, you see, I was restructured twice in two and a half years. And we know now that restructured is a nice way of saying fired. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the now term. Yeah. <laughs> it's the politically correct term for being fired these days. And, and believe it or not, it came as a shock each time I was restructured or fired, as you say. I wanted and needed answers about what I had to do to hold on to employment. And that way, with those answers, I, I wouldn't unknowingly make the same mistake. Uh, notice, I assumed there was only one mistake. <laughs> That uh, that was also an eye-opener when I began my research because there was more than one that I made personally. So rather than do uncooperated third-party research, I decided to ask 102 what I'd like to call real people with real jobs who worked in a variety of different industries and who had at least 10 years of work experience to tell me what they did to survive because I obviously didn't know myself. And these were people who had a pretty fair job record of surviving and moving up the ranks, I guess, were they? Uh, at least uh, my criteria was that they had to have at be employed for at least 10 years. Right. Do you, do you share the idea that sort of out there in the world around us that uh, this is probably one of the biggest problems in most people's minds, like either get a job or if I've got one, can I hang on to it? Absolutely. Uh, these days you can't pick up a newspaper, go to a party, or even sit in a, in a coffee shop without hearing horror stories about job loss. So um, it, it's a very big issue for individuals. It was certainly a big issue for me. Yeah. Is it reasonable to say that many people who may not have, shall we say, a healthy concern for job survival should start... Uh, cultivating one, given that the layoffs and the firings continue out there? I think so. At least you won't be uh, shocked when you come into the office one Tuesday morning and a representative from HR tells you that your employer no longer requires your services and then marches you out the front door. Accompanied mm -hmm. by a security guard who takes your security pass back. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, clear out your desk and head for the door. Yeah. <laughs> The 102 real people with real jobs that I interviewed for Suits and Ladders say that unless you own the company, are married to the boss, or are employed in a family business, it is in your best interest to think of your current role as a project rather than as job. So this means, by extension, that everyone, no matter what their age, stage, or title, is always looking for the next project. And that's where Suits and Ladders comes in. Let's talk about your bubbly personality. That didn't ensure that you kept the jobs that you uh, were restructured for motive? No, absolutely not. Um, I decided that it wasn't my bubbly personality and it wasn't my technical skills because I'd won many awards and I had uh, I had run my own very successful consulting practice for about 15 years before I entered into employment and um, so I, I had confidence in the level of my technical skills and uh, I, I, I was a bit shocked when I was restructured each time which sent me on this journey to um, 
find out what I needed to do if I wanted to keep my corporate job safe or to survive. And you interviewed 102 people. Uh, I think you said 51 men and 51 women. That's a massive research job. How did you, before we even talk about the interviews themselves, how did you select those candidates of all the people that you would know and how did you approach them? Well, I started uh, the easy way. I started with my own LinkedIn contacts, and uh, once I got through um, people who were willing to talk to me, I asked them for referrals. I knew I wanted to talk to an equal number of men and women so that my research would be gender neutral. And I wanted to know whether people in different industries survived differently. So in other words, I wanted to know someone who worked for a not-for-profit or a government agency survived differently than someone who worked in the arts or in publishing or for an IT organization. I also wanted to know whether it was even possible for consultants like myself to successfully transition into employment or whether it was just impossible. What did you conclude about that? It is possible. Mm -hmm. it, it, if they have the, <laughs> if they operate as if they were an employee, not as if they were a consultant, which was my big mistake, then, um, or one of my big mistakes, then uh, they can very successfully transition. As a matter of fact, I interviewed 10 people who did exactly that. They moved from consultants <clears throat> to becoming employees. So you basically started, if I understand you correctly, you started with friends and acquaintances who would be sympathetic to your project, and then when you did the interviews with them, you would ask them to refer you to other people that they would suggest. Yes. Is that about right? That's correct. So it wasn't really a scientific choice. It was probably a, a combination of people who would relate to you, would relate to the topic, and basically help you out with other referrals. So that, that was pretty much how you constructed the the roster of interviewees, I guess. Well, the net, I also made sure that they weren't of the same title, mm. and they, they didn't work in the same industry. And although they know me, my LinkedIn network is, is quite... Um, diverse in terms of, of the members of it so that I didn't just simply select everybody I knew. I tried to be a little bit discriminating so that I could meet my own self-imposed targets of not having all communicators, for example, or all marketers or all people that work for not-for-profits. I was very aware of who I was choosing to, to talk to, and then hopefully they would be open to talking to me. And it sounds like you hit your targets. I certainly did. I certainly did. In terms did you have of, anybody turn you down and just say, you know, it's just too close to the bone for me, I was just fired, I don't want to do this, or I'm nervous of my own job? Or I had a lot of people... Um, not return my calls. <laughs> Most journalists are familiar with that feeling, yes. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it, it was really interesting. And actually, I found that uh, a lot of people in, in government agencies were very reluctant to talk to me. Even though you weren't identifying them, they were yes. still reluctant. Yes, and um, as well as I found that men were more reluctant to talk to me than women. Really? So it, it, that part was really Is it because you're a woman or because men are more concerned about these things or what? Can you guess why? <laughs> I don't. Wrong? I have no idea why. Your bubbly if, personality didn't carry <laughs> you over with these guys? Nope. 
Not at all, unfortunately. And and usually the, uh, you know, so I went out to my network and I said, I need men. I need men to talk to. And uh, my network uh, suggested men and I worked down the list and I eventually came up with an equal number of men and women. So of the 102 people you, you approached, how many uh, you interviewed, how many would you say that you approached to get down to the 102? Roughly. I'd say probably about 120. Right. So there weren't too many rejections then. There's only, what, maybe 18 rejections or thereabout? Yes. That's, right. that, that's a fair number. I think about that. And the rejections were either because they were guys who were concerned or they were government employees or maybe just didn't want to be bothered or something. Uh, are those the reasons? Well, they didn't give me any reasons. They just okay. didn't. They just ignored my request. And, and what was even more interesting was these were referrals that had been set up by m members of my network. To, to so I, interview, yeah. Yes, so I found it very strange, but uh, I didn't uh, I didn't let it bother me too much. I think anybody that's been on job search um, understands that none of this is personal and that people do what they do because they do it, and it has nothing to do with me. Talk, and, talking about what's personal... Um, are people who are laid off in this day and age or fired or, shall we say, strongly encouraged to resign, do many people still take it personally when, in fact, it has nothing to do with them? It's the company, it's the times, it's the economy. But do we sometimes still think it's a personal failure when we're fired? I know I did. I don't know about other people. Um... Not having employment affects everything. The mm -hmm. obvious thing is lifestyle. So the things I used to do without thinking about them, like going out for dinner with friends or going to the gym or buying new clothes, were off the table. Other things were, were affected. For me, my self-confidence took a big hit. Um, well, yeah, because when you're at a party and you meet somebody and they don't ask where you live, the first question is, who are you? And the second question is, what do you do? And when you can't answer that question coherently, you start to feel maybe something is missing there. Absolutely. Worry also became my new best friend. And because I was worried, my sleep patterns were affected, as were my eating habits. Even my personality was, was different and, and not in a good way, I might say. So that, that happy, upbeat, um, bubbly personality that I used to have, I turned into an angry, morose, and embittered lady. And then one day I just got tired of being angry and feeling sorry for myself, and I decided to get some answers. And the answers became the book. Absolutely. Right. So basically, what it, what you might be saying is, as well as writing a book for all the reasons why authors write books, this book was kind of a journey to some kind of understanding about what's going on and what has gone on. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's what's helpful for me personally allowed me to have closure and move on. And I think that that's, um, losing a job is like losing, it's like somebody died. Most people over the age of 25 have been fired at least once in this life. And I guess um, many people, some people can take, can take it and say, well, that's life. And others take it personally as if they somehow uh, failed. And you're saying quite often that they shouldn't read it that way. 
um, the interview subjects that you talked about would not have talked to, I should say, would not have had any payoff for cooperating with you. They don't get publicity. They don't get job offers out of it. They don't get anything out of it because you didn't identify them and you didn't use their names. So how did you persuade them to give you all the time that would be necessary for this kind of intimate conversation? I would imagine you had at least one long conversation with them and perhaps several follow-ups. So that's a pretty fair time commitment. And they don't get a payoff. So how did you persuade them to do this? Well, when I first approached someone, I asked him or her to consider the interview as an opportunity to mentor hundreds or maybe even thousands of people at the same time. So that always made them laugh. And since most people believe in the positive benefits of mentoring, either um, mentoring and being mentored is one of the ten proven ways to keep your corporate job safe, as it turns out, I'm sure this struck a chord, I guess. And because they knew me or the person that had referred them to me, they had a general sense of what I was looking for. In retrospect, I was always shocked at how seriously and how much time every person I interviewed in Suits and Ladders um, gave me. Actual interviews typically took about um, three-quarters of an hour and and went as long as three hours. One even went for five hours, and I didn't even know that. One long interview for five hours, one person. (laughs) Absolutely. Was, Was that person nervous or verbose or just helpful? It's, um, well, I think that people appreciated an opportunity to reminisce about their employment journey and to mentor others because I, I asked everybody that I talked to, I didn't have any prepared questions. I just asked them to cast their minds back, their mind's eye back over the totality of their professional career and think of what they did right, what they did, you know, which they hadn't done, what, what they wish they would have done more of and, and share that with me because that's what I was interested in. Things they actually did to be successful. I didn't want to talk about the books they read unless they actually implemented the strategies of that book in their employment journey. So I wanted concrete, practical. I didn't want theoretical. Mm-hmm. So is that what you were looking for with the people you interviewed, people who could talk to you on a practical level and, in effect, indirectly become a kind of mentor? Is that what you were looking for when you chose these 102 people? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I've called them in, in Suits and Ladders. I call them our 102 mentors. Mm-hmm. I certainly felt that uh, I was getting mentored by each one of the people I spoke to. And I realized after the interviews how many mistakes I had made and how many, how many careers limiting moves I had made um, so yeah. <laughs> that was good to know to know I, that. I think most people might feel there's been a career limiting move in the background there somewhere <laughs> I don't think you need to explain that to too much to anybody but sometimes when when an author and we've all every journalist has been through this sometimes when an author is interviewing an individual about a semi-personal situation uh, they might reveal something that's rather personal or almost too personal and you hesitate to incorporate it in the material. Did that happen to you at all in these in these interviews? 
Not, not really. I, I don't think so. Um, you know, one or people talked about uh, one or two people talked about uh, their feelings when they were uh, they were in transition. Um, but a few of those have made have made its way into suits and ladders because everything everyone said to me was off the record, and that's that was one of the ways because I got not, them. Because you're not using their names. That's correct. Uh, I did acknowledge them by name at the front of the book, so readers can be assured that they didn't make up. This information. I actually talked to 102 people, real people with real jobs, and they are mentioned and acknowledged at the front. How it's long did you spend researching this book? The 102 interviews and the finding them, uh, contacting them, persuading them to talk to you, doing the interview, uh, sorting out your notes afterwards. How long did all this take? Well, each person took about a day to by the time I located them and and talked to them and and I tried to meet as many people as I possibly could in person mm -hmm. rather than do telephone interviews. Do you get more that way? I get more that way, and I establish rapport that way, more importantly. And I get to expand my own network that way, mm -hmm. so that there was benefit to me in doing that uh, a personal interview as well. Did you choose the locale of the interviews? Like, did you do it in boardrooms or coffee shops, or what did you do? Coffee shops. Right. Because it was, it was a. I wanted a relaxed environment, and uh, I guess. If it was a boardroom, it would have been a little bit too stiff and formal. And I really wanted people to to talk from, you know, to reminisce about what had helped them. And you concentrate adequately on a person who's divulging some personal information uh, in a noisy coffee shop? Oh, we, we we didn't meet in noisy times. Okay. We met in the middle of the day when coffee shops tend to be a little bit more quiet. I see. So you, what you got was the, I guess, the distance from the boardroom and the relative quiet of a coffee shop during the afternoon. I guess that obviously worked for you. It did. Yeah. So was it roughly half were on the phone and half were in various locations or no, something like that? No. Most of them were on the phone. Most of them were no, on the phone. Sorry. Sorry. I, I, I did this incorrectly. Most of them were in person. Mm -hmm. probably Probably because of the fact I interviewed people in um, France and South Africa and New Zealand and the States, uh, five in total, international mid to senior managers, um, those definitely were done on mm. the telephone. We don't and expect you to fly to South Africa. <laughs> Although that would have been really nice. I keep hoping they'll invite me to back in to present uh, the information, but mm. uh, that remains to be seen whether that happens or not. And... Uh, People in Mississauga or Oakville or Calgary or Quebec, obviously, um, I can't talk to in person. But I'd say a good 80% I met in person. Mm -hmm. We can't go through 102 interviews uh, or by chapter by chapter to uh, talk about the main lessons or the, or the main takeaways. But what are some of the top two or three that you'd like uh, readers to get from the book? Oh, well, there, there are so many great pieces of advice in Suits and Ladders. Um, only two or three. I've got ten personal face. Um, but if it's two or three that you want, it's two or three you'll get. Okay. Uh, first, 
You only have one priority, to make your boss happy and to keep him or her safe. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was my biggest uh, failing as an employee. Now, how do we do that? How do, how do I make, I mean, I know how to keep a boss happy, but how do you keep them safe? It's because, well, you, you keep them safe by following instructions mm-hmm. <laughs> and not being insubordinate, which is, uh, and that leads me to, to point number two. So let's say you're being directed to do something you think is detrimental to the organization or you believe a particular instruction is ill-advised. So um, based on the 102 real people with real jobs, you only have two options, do it and fix it later or quit. So I didn't avail myself of those two options, and needless to say, I was restructured. Uh, And three is when you fail to consider your colleagues' objectives, you can inadvertently become an obstacle in their world. And so they will probably return the favor by creating an obstacle in yours. But you may not know all the objectives. I mean, people have, employers have hidden objectives which may not be precisely aligned with the company's objectives, and you may honestly not know what these objectives are. That's why you have to follow instructions. So if your boss has given you an instruction, um, sometimes you are not privy to the reasons why the instruction was given. Mm-hmm. And your job as an employee, and my job certainly as an employee, was to follow instructions, and I didn't. I didn't. Right. And that's why I was restructured. But a lot of people who are staring at termination notices right now would would not necessarily have done that. I mean, those 400 employees at ESPN are probably wondering what hit them. The company had one of its best years ever. The employees thought, great, you know, we could relax, and then uh, 400 of them were terminated. Uh, how, do, how do they deal with that? I think that um, given our times, it's realistic to assume that there will always be a certain number of people who lose their jobs for, for, because of corporate decision-making or because the company just isn't in business any longer. And there's nothing anybody can do about that. That's completely beyond our control. But there are also people like me who lose their jobs because of naivete or because of their own career-limiting moves, and that is where suits and ladders come in. One of the more popular um, pieces of advice that you get in some of these how-to articles and career magazines and things is that even if you have a staff job, you have to look upon yourself as always applying to hang on to it and or always applying to go somewhere else. Did any of your folks talk about that? Yes, that you always have to bring your A game. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as, and, and you're only as good, you're, you've only proved your accomplishments, and you're only as good as whatever you delivered in the last round of paychecks. Mm-hmm. So it's a clean slate. After you've received your paycheck, then it's up to you to keep delivering on your objectives, and no coasting is allowed. People are doing today, from what I understand, from people I've spoken to, to sometimes through jobs of three people, all on one person's head. Now, 
whether or not that will that can maintain or sustain itself going forward, whether or not that's a good move by companies who are doing this, I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough to, to take that on. But the reality is people have to do other people's jobs in addition to their own and, and make sure that whatever they're doing is effective, on target, on time, on budget, all those things that you have to do, and you, and you can't let your own duties slide. And, and I guess part of it is making sure that everybody around you knows that you did it on time and on target. It's not just a question of doing it. It's a question of making sure that that the right people know that you did it. Well, we have to do a a PR campaign for ourselves, and uh, except we can't be egomaniacs when when we do that. It Mm -hmm. can't be, look at me, look at how fantastic, look at what I did. And uh, especially in corporations today, it's teamwork. So it's look what the team did. And I was part of the team. Here's what we accomplished. Here's, Here's our projects. I'm really excited and looking forward. So that you become a little bit of a cheerleader, ambassador, for the team and and always talk uh, about what you can do and what you're looking forward to doing. Right. For your book to be a success, I think you said that part one is it was a journey for you and it sounds like from what you're telling me that you've enjoyed the journey and the journey's been successful. Second measure of success in this case obviously is sales. Now, what else would it take to be able to say perhaps a year from now that the book was a success, uh, what would it take to be able to say that? It's, uh, well, for me, besides books, some paid speaking gigs, of course, I will know suits and ladders if successful mm, in a few ways. One, when I don't react the same way I did in the past, and that's because I have more knowledge, and I'm actually applying the knowledge that I learned, and I hope to have an opportunity to apply the knowledge that I learned. Uh, for me here, um, because I live in Toronto, when I see someone reading a hard copy of Suits and Ladders on the TTC, then I would know it's a success because the word is getting out there. That, that can be a very eerie feeling, standing on a bus and you look down <laughs> and somebody's reading your stuff. That's, that's actually almost a, a, a fictional feeling. You, you look down and they're there with a magic marker and they're underlining <laughs> parts of what they're enjoying. I guess it's rewarding in some ways. Absolutely. For me, that would be, you know, and these are personal successes. Um, another one is when the majority of people who have reviewed Suits and Ladders give it four or five stars on Amazon. And last but not least, I made an offer in Suits and Ladders that I hope uh, my readers and your listeners will take me up on. And that is, I offered to provide a half an hour of free Skype job coaching to the first 25 people who could figure out the four career limiting moves I made. And they're in Suits and Ladders in, kids, in the case studies. Uh, and it will be a big win for me. And I'll know that I've gotten through, number one, because people have bought the book. And number two, that they're engaged with the material by participating when I've completed the 25 uh, free Skype job coaching sessions. Hmm. It sounds like the book itself is rewarding for you as an author as well as possibly bringing in some income, but it sounds like you've got a lot of personal rewards out of it. Absolutely. I think that's that's an extremely uh, fair statement to make. Hmm. 
And I would encourage everybody to, you know, I had never published a, this is my debut book. I had never published a book before. I'd always wanted to, but this, I'd never done it. So, um, I was, I was compelled to, to do this work because I got tired of being rejected. I'd sent in about 120 resume, uh, you know, job applications and I never even got a phone call back or an acknowledgement saying people had received my application. Well, in, in this climate, it's not likely you're going to ever get a response unless <laughs> they really want you. I mean, every, every job applicant knows that, I'm sure. Well, it, it, it is discouraging when you're on the other side and you keep sending these things out into the, to the universe. And I realized first from my research on certs and ladders that I, I should be focusing my networks, my, my efforts on networking for the next position mm -hmm. to tap into the hidden job market. And, uh, I was just taking the easy way out mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, then rejection isn't personal because then you, you could say, oh, well, the, the computer spiders didn't like my application and, and that's that. And so I wasn't rejected personally and I looked like I was doing something, but I wasn't doing the hard work, um, in terms of networking required to secure the next the next great job. And is that the first commandment? Is that the prime directive? No. No. No, the prime directive uh, based on the 102 real people with real jobs is self-awareness, believe it or not, mm -hmm. and tied for first place is um having a reputation, a, a great reputation as a can-do person, an enthusiastic person, an upbeat person who won't let anything stand in the way of getting the job done. And the next one after that is EQ or emotional intelligence. So those are the top three. Great. I, it sounds like you've given a lot of listeners and potential readers a lot of good ideas. I've been talking to Susan Fromstein about her book, Suits and Ladders, 10 Proven Ways to Keep Your Job Safe. And I would imagine in this climate, uh, many people are wondering about that right now. You can find Susan's book on Amazon in both the e-book and printed versions. I'm Al Levitt, and thanks for listening to this.